Welcome back to the Eve event. Over the last few podcasts, we have explored male violence against women and children and heard from the brilliant Julie Brindle, um, as well as discussion around the policing bill that has specific relevance to the shocking response uh, to the peaceful vigil for Sarah Everard, who was abducted and murdered in London on the 3rd of March 2021. as She walked home from a friend's. And we also touched on the domestic abuse bill in that episode um, as a success story in the campaign to protect women and girls from serious stalkers and domestic, domestic violence perpetrators. So in March, the House of Lords um, voted to support Amendment 42, which propo- proposed creating a register of serial offenders. However, the celebrations were short-lived when this month the government instructed its MPs to oppose this measure and the vote fell 226 in favour and 351 against. So the government intends instead to propose uh, to issue more guidance on managing these violent men. I find this a bit mind-boggling, to say the least, and reinforcing of how women and girls are not considered to be of significance enough of its significant enough importance in this country. Uh, today, though, um, I'm not going to feel too downhearted because I really think that we can we can come together and do something about this. Um, and so, I would like to introduce you to another disobedient woman. She's a powerhouse of inspiration and I am so grateful that she is out there campaigning, highlighting and making a difference. Her name is Laura Richards. She is a criminal behavioural analyst. She's a former New Scotland Yard and FBI profiler. She's an international expert on domestic violence, stalking, sexual violence, homicide and risk assessment. She's the founder of Paladin, the world's first national stalking advocacy service. Um, And Laura is also uh, a host of several podcasts, including Real Crime Profile and more recently Crime Analyst. So Laura has given us permission to share episode 12 of her Crime Analyst podcast, as it pretty much sums up um, the and, and ties together all the issues we have been discussing here on the Eve event. So we are going to get straight into that now. Uh, just one more thing, though. Please consider contacting your MP to ask for their support for a National Stalking Register and do sign the petition on change.org. And we'll provide you a link in the show notes. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell for a special report and update. My goodness, what a week it has been. Firstly, I was totally delighted with the landslide victory in the House of Lords on Monday the 15th of March. 327 peers voted in favour of my Amendment 73 for serial domestic abusers and stalkers to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, prison and probation services and for a perpetrator strategy focusing on male violence. This is a huge victory for campaigners and it has been 20 years in the making. 
So I firstly want to pay tribute to Baroness Royal and all who spoke out about why this is so important, including Baroness Brinton, Lord Hunt, Lord Russell and Baroness Burton. And I want to thank all the survivors and families who have bravely shared their stories over the years, including John Clough, Zoe Dromfield, Rachel Williams, Georgia Gabriel Hooper, Charlotte Neer, Gemma Aitchison and Celia Peachy, and to all of you who have signed the petition and supported Amendment 73, and all my campaigning and requests to write letters, etc. We did it! It's amazing. I and all the survivors and families are delighted. It's been such a long, hard-fought campaign, and it's been a very emotional journey over the last 20 years, a real roller coaster of some highs, but also many lows. This is my longest campaign yet of seven other successful law reforms, but I never gave up. I never doubted that this is what needs to happen, and this is the right thing. Violence and abuse begins in the home. It is domestic terrorism. And I know that this will create cultural change that is desperately needed. It will mean a you-must approach to joining up perpetrators' histories and intelligence and information that will be shared. It will mean that domestic abuse and stalking are taken seriously and there's a focus on the perpetrators for the first time. It will mean, rather than asking, why doesn't she leave? Why did she do X? Why did she do Y? Why was she out at 9.30pm? That we focus on him and we ask, how do we stop him? And it will act as a deterrent for some, as they won't want to go on that register. This really will be a game changer. And as of today, Friday the 19th of March, I'm hearing that the government are going to act and will invest in a super-duper database, which would be amazing, as an agile digital platform is exactly what's needed. I want all agencies to be able to use it and access it and share timely information about perpetrators. And this is great news if true, but we can't stop now. We must continue to keep the pressure on the government to act and to do the right thing and ensure that this happens sooner rather than later, as the clock is ticking until the next murder. 232 peers voted against Amendment 73, and 216 of those peers were Conservatives. Astounding, really, when the Prime Minister and Priti Patel said women's safety is a priority. But fear not as they're going to put more cameras and lights up outside and more undercover police officers in bars and clubs. Now, in light of Oliver Banfield attacking Sophie Homer, a stranger attack on a lone female, using his restraint skills as he is a serving police officer with West Midlands Police, I'm sure this reassures no one, particularly in the context of Sarah Everard and Claire Parry's cases. And I'm going to talk about them all in a moment. But I want to thank you all for taking action, signing the petition, sharing information on social media and for all your wonderful heartfelt messages of congratulations. I've really tried hard to reply to most of you, but there are just so many. But keep them coming. And I'm sorry if I didn't get round to messaging everyone. So this is my big thank you to you all. It has just been such an incredibly busy week. It's been overwhelming and we still have much more to do. The domestic abuse bill will be back in the House of Commons after Easter, and so the time really is now to act. We must keep the pressure on the government and ensure that they deliver. No more words. We want action. So here are three things that you can do to help. Firstly, write to or email your Member of Parliament. Ask that they support the inclusion of serial domestic abusers and stalkers on the database for violent and sexual offenders. 
state that public protection must be joined up and investment is needed in a database training and guidance. Please include your own personal reason for why you think this is of vital importance that government do this and act now. And you can include that since the first reading of the Domestic Abuse Bill in the House of Lords, 30 women have been murdered. And so the clock really is ticking. Whilst this continues to be debated, and when femicide is at an all-time high. Two, complete the government's short online survey about violence against women and girls and ask that they prioritise and focus on perpetrators and male violence and serial domestic abusers and stalkers. And I'll post the link to that particular consultation. It was reopened in the wake of Sarah Everard. Three, repost and share all my social media posts about the amendment and the campaign, on Twitter, I'm at Laura Richards 99 or at The Crime Analyst. And on Instagram, I'm at Laura Richards 999 or at Crime Analyst. And use hashtag Amendment 73, hashtag Domestic Abuse Bill, hashtag Male Violence when you post. And just bear in mind that the amendment number will change once it goes back into the House of Commons. So please be the change. Thank you so much for your support and activism because together we can make this happen and women's lives depend on it. And please remember the present context about why this is so important. As I said, femicide is at an all-time high. A woman is murdered every three days by a man, and a woman is murdered every four days by a current or former partner. Throughout the first lockdown, five women a week were killed by a male partner or ex-partner. I counted 38 women and four children, and so we know femicide is not rare. We know the home is the most dangerous place for a woman, between 2009 and 2018, 78% of the 1,425 women who were killed were killed in their homes, and that's from the femicide census and counting dead women. Between 2015 and 17, a Freedom of Information request was put into all police forces by Vice, who Paladin partnered with, and that revealed that 60 women were murdered after they reported their partner or ex-partner to the police for domestic abuse or stalking. Many women reported threats to kill, and we know through research that one in two of domestic stalkers, if they make a threat, will act on it. Most of these men had a history of harming other women, yet there was no proactive risk identification, assessment or management of the perpetrators. The disappearance and murder of Sarah Everard yet again highlights the fear and reality of male violence for all women. It's the one thing that unites all women. And as Margaret Atwood once said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. This is the simple reality that women live with every single day. Sarah's case is worryingly similar to the abduction, rape and murder of Libby Squires, where yet again there was a patterned previous history of offending that wasn't identified. This predatory stalking behaviour is on a continuum, yet too often when women report they're not taken seriously and the cases aren't prioritised as they're seen as, in inverted commas, low-level nuisance crimes rather than serious gateway behaviours to rape and murder. This has to change. And in the wake of Sarah's murder, we've seen an outpouring from women, and it's continuing. Women are sharing their stories, particularly after Commissioner Cressida Dick said that this was a rare event. Well, we women know it's not rare, and we've had enough. We don't want false reassurances or platitudes, and we're fed up with being told to modify or change our behaviour to prevent male violence. It's not women's behaviour that's the problem. 
And it's not for women to fix the problem of male violence. Men need to get involved. And yes, that's all men. All men need to play a part to fix this and hold violent and abusive men to account. All men need to be anti-misogynistic and challenge misogyny and sexism. It's not good enough to remain silent, as your silence colludes and gives a green light to this behaviour and attitude. And I've talked about this on Crime Analyst with the case of P.S., His friends never challenged his misogyny and his horrific comments about women, which further emboldened him and made him feel it was okay and acceptable. And it's not. And I just want to say something about the reaction from some men across the last few weeks. The attitude, well, it wasn't me, or why should men be punished, or I'm not an abuser, has been simply astounding. As Nathan Foward said, a man who I retweeted, imagine if everyone was tweeting that robbers were bad, and I jumped into their replies, furiously arguing that I'm not a robber. I reckon you'd be like, hmm, that guy seems like a robber. And the men who jumped on my timeline and insulted and attacked me, I see you. What's instructive to me is that some men only get involved when I talked about flipping the script and placing a curfew or restrictions on men not to go out after dark rather than women. Oh, they didn't like that. Not one bit. Then they pipe up and start insulting me, saying that I'm sexist, and much worse. They've nothing to say when women, when we are told to change our behaviour noticeably, because that's not sexist at all, is it? Because that doesn't affect them. I mean, how selfish and egocentric. What a double standard. Take a look at yourself. And yet those men are happy to insult me and abuse me and name-call as if I'm the problem for pointing it out and that they want to leave women to sort it all out. Well, it's not our problem to fix, it's yours. And yes, it's all men. So men, you're either part of the solution and want to ensure women are protected and safe and you want to hold abusive men to account, or you're part of the problem. You see, you do have a choice here and you need to be active in this choice. If you're silent, you collude with the perpetrators and you're saying that it's okay. So which one is it? And please, everyone, think about language. Language really does matter. Please stop using the phrase abusive relationship. There is no such thing. The relationship itself cannot be abusive. Only a person can, an actor. So name the abuser. Don't mask them. And name it when it's male violence. Even the phrase, violence against women and girls, is passive, like we do it to ourselves. There is no named actor, and it implies it's up to women to fix it, which is what many of us have been trying to do for years, well, decades, and it doesn't work. We must name the problem of male violence, misogyny, sexism, and a gender bias in order to tackle it, and men must be involved in fixing it. And it really is a widespread and prevalent issue. Along with the Metropolitan Police Officer, Wayne Cousins, being arrested and charged for Sarah's murder, the Metropolitan Police Service has now been referred seven times to the Independent Office of Police Complaints since Sarah Everard's murder. And just weeks after Sarah's murder, West Midlands Police Officer Oliver Banfield was in court on Friday the 19th of March and was found guilty of attacking Emma Homer as she was walking home last summer after a night out with friends. He started shouting at her, It was pitch black, and she was using her phone as a torch. He started shouting, Why are you following me, you fucking slag? He put his arms around her neck and violently assaulted her. 
Emma was tenacious and brave, and later she undertook her own investigation because the police didn't initially do anything when she reported it, and she found out it was 25-year-old Oliver Bamfield, an off-duty police officer, who attacked her. He lived local to her, and she was shocked to find out that he was indeed a police officer. Now, Warwickshire police have admitted that they were slow to act. There was CCTV footage captured by a neighbour. It's the assault right there! On the floor now! On the floor now! On the floor now! You just saw you push your face? That is an assault. Oliver Bamfield originally claimed that Emma assaulted him. It's clear from the video footage that that wasn't the case. Now, this is classic Darvo. If you haven't heard of Darvo, it means to deny, attack, reverse victim and offender roles. I see it a lot. And he only pled guilty after an investigation. Now, he continues to work for West Midlands Police, but he's now been suspended, awaiting a disciplinary hearing. They had to wait for the criminal case to reach its conclusion first. And he was ordered to pay £500 in compensation and sentenced to a 14-week nighttime curfew, and he will have a tag fitted. His solicitor said he was sincerely sorry. Well, it seems to me that he was sorry that he was caught. He darvoed Emma to start with, remember? He didn't admit it, and he didn't say that he was sorry. Horrific. He attacked a lone female at night as she's walking home. He assaults her. He calls her a fucking slag. And he's clearly misogynistic, and there's no place for him in the police service. And yet it took the police eight weeks to go to the scene. They didn't take Emma seriously, and that's not acceptable, because it won't be the first time he's behaved like that. It might, however, be the first time that he's been caught. And then there's the case of Claire Parry, who was killed by police officer Timothy Bremmer on May 9th, 2020. They'd been having a relationship outside their marriages, and she sent a text to his wife telling her about the relationship. Bremmer killed her and claimed that she had attacked him when police arrived at the scene. He later claimed at court that in the kerfuffle, the melee, his arms were accidentally around her neck and she must have died. What utter nonsense. He, like Bamford, was trained to restrain people safely. And why are they putting their hands around women's necks in the first place? Hands around the neck. Strangulation increases the risk of serious harm and femicide sevenfold. It is a high risk factor in the DASH, the Domestic Abuse, Stalking and Harassment and Honour-Based Violence Risk Model. When hands go around the neck, an abuser never goes back. Bremer was sentenced to just ten and a half years for killing Claire. I was astounded to read that the judge, Mr Justice Jacobs, said that when Claire sent the text to his wife, he killed her. As if that's a reasonable explanation for Bremer to kill Claire. You see how easy it is for the perpetrator to get empathy and for the victim, a woman, to be blamed. She did X and then he did Y. This is unacceptable and it has to be challenged and it has to stop. My analysis and interpretation of the facts of the case, as I understood them, was that when he couldn't control Claire, he killed her. It was a sustained attack in a car. His narrative was that his arms accidentally slipped around her neck, in inverted commas, during a kerfuffle, his words, well, that makes no sense to me. And the fact that he lied at the scene and darvoed Claire when she was dead so she couldn't tell us what happened, and the fact that he lied again in court, 
And he was also described as a womanizer with a history of coercive control by Detective Constable Kate Rhodes. And the very fact that he was a police officer speaks volumes and fights against his narrative. These are all aggravating factors, in my opinion, as Bremer took calculated steps to shift the blame and deflect attention away from what he had done. His actions, deliberate, intentional, calculated, his choice. He chose to kill Claire, and now she's dead, and her children are growing up without a mummy. Claire was a nurse. She was married and had a family who loved her very much. Imagine now how this feels for them. A judge justifying why Bremer killed her and buying into his narrative. Thankfully, his sentence was reviewed as so many of us used our voices to complain and ask for a review. And now Bremer's sentence has been increased to 13 years after it was reviewed by the Attorney General, who referred the case to the Court of Appeal under the unduly lenient sentence scheme. And then there's the case of Ruth Williams killed by her husband, Anthony Williams. Now, he claims he snapped. He said it was five days into lockdown and he was worried about money and he snapped. He received a five-year sentence for killing Ruth, just five years for manslaughter rather than murder. And the facts of the case, as I understand them, are this. Ruth did everything at home, all the domestic chores. He went everywhere with her and they spent 90% of their time together. They never argued they never raised their voices. They had no money problems. They were retired. Their mortgage was paid. And they had £149,000 in the bank. Williams had no previous documented psychiatric history. The evening Ruth was killed, they were in bed and Ruth told him to get over it when he expressed some concerns about lockdown. He then attacked and strangled her in the bedroom. She tried to get away from him and he chased her down the stairs. He grabbed her by the throat as she tried to unlock the front door to leave the house. Ruth had her keys in her hand as she was strangled to death. Williams told the police that he, his words, literally choked the living daylights out of her. In my opinion, this was a sustained attack, and he had the option to stop. Their daughter gave evidence at court and was of course heartbroken. Her mother was dead, and she didn't want to lose her dad too. She told the court that he was a gentle giant, and she never saw domestic abuse. Now, of course, domestic abuse is not always about physical abuse. It can be psychological, emotional, and financial. It can be that coercive control is used. Did Williams control Ruth? Was he angered when she spoke back to him? Was she saying that she was going to leave him? Because we know separation is a high risk factor to femicide. Now, I don't know the answers to these questions, but these are the questions that should have been asked by the Crown Prosecution Service, in my opinion. Often coercive control is rendered invisible by the abuser, who is omnipotent and omnipresent in the victim's life. Five years. How can that be right? Is a woman's life really worth so little? You'd get more for armed robbery. And why are we so quick to believe a man, to believe his narrative and give him empathy? when the poor me syndrome defence goes in, which it always does. Why is there a rush to believe that he is a good enough man, and yet people try and find every reason to blame the woman, even in her own rape and death, as to why she deserved it? I wrote to the Attorney General and asked for Williams's unduly lenient sentence to be reviewed. I asked many of you to do the same, 
and it has been announced that it is being reviewed. So that's a victory and a relief. And there will be a domestic homicide review in this case now due to an intervention from Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, after receiving pressure from campaigners. Well done, everyone. You see, we can use our collective voices and stand up for women and ensure change happens. And we have to keep taking action. I know it feels relentless, and it is, because this is a widespread and pervasive problem, but every woman matters, and I won't rest until we matter more. And there is a culture in policing of misogyny, institutionalised sexism, and a gender bias. I have seen this time and time again, and I've also experienced it myself. That's what needs to be talked about and tackled. I want to know what Commissioner Dick's plan is to tackle the misogyny, sexism, and gender bias in the Met Police. And what's she doing to tackle the most violent men who are terrorising women and children in London? What's Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Home Secretary Priti Patel, Lord Chancellor Robert Buckland and Minister Victoria Atkins going to do about that? What are they going to do to tackle the most violent men? On Monday the 15th of March, the government was defeated in the House of Lords by the majority who voted in favour of Amendment 73 in the Domestic Abuse Bill. Now, this will ensure serial domestic abusers and stalkers are proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, prison and probation services if it comes in. It also includes the creation of a comprehensive perpetrator strategy focusing on male violence against women. And yet 216 Conservative peers voted against it. How can that be right when they say they're listening to women and taking our safety and protection seriously? We know that deadly violence against women is at an all-time high. My 2004 report entitled Getting Away With It, a profile of the domestic violence, sexual and serious offenders published in the Metropolitan Police Service highlighted that many domestic abusers and stalkers were serial perpetrators who go from victim to victim and that one in 12 of them raped inside and outside the home and one in eight of them were committing serious violence inside and outside the home. I made the recommendation then for serial perpetrators to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, prison and probation services using the multi-agency public protection arrangements and the violent sexual offenders database. However, we know this still isn't happening. Now, Baroness Williams has continued to throw every argument in the way of this happening, including her more recent argument that this is about poor practice rather than process. And that's simply not accurate. Domestic abusers and stalker cases are not heard at the MAP meetings. Oftentimes, the cases are not seen as serious, despite guidance and specialist domestic abuse and stalking services are not invited to attend the meetings. Oftentimes, there may be no physical abuse, but high levels of coercive control, and that's not seen as a risk by most professionals. Yet research shows it correlates significantly with femicide. A University of Gloucestershire findings in 2017 found that in 94% of murders of women, there was coercive control preceding separation and stalking post-separation. The fact that a perpetrator is serial also increases the risk, and yet this isn't taken into consideration either. I can attest that no amount of training or guidance has changed this in the last 20 years, and leadership and priority and clarity is urgently needed from the government and senior police leaders now more than ever. Law change is required to create a new category, Category 4, to ensure serial and high-harm domestic abusers and stalkers are identified and managed by MAPA+. Plus. And I'm calling it MAPA+, Plus because it would include domestic abuse, coercive control and stalking specialists who would be sat at the table. 
This would create much needed clarity that these perpetrators must be proactively identified, assessed and managed. In terms of this new category, this would arguably create more clarity and ensure the perpetrators do not get lost or deprioritized amongst others. Guidance could include that each area must identify 10 to 20 serial and high-harm domestic abusers and stalkers to be heard at MAPPER under Category 4. Equally, serial has already been defined as two or more victims, and the offences can be specified just as they currently are at MAPPER. The perpetrators must be included on VISA, the Violent and Sexual Offender Database. This has been the national database since its 2003 pilot and rollout. And since that piloting and rollout, it hasn't been updated, so it would be even better to have a 2021 new super-duper database. Investing in a digital platform that actually works far better and that more agencies can use and ensuring data collection and timely information share, which is urgently needed to track these perpetrators as they travel, change their names, and their detailed history must follow them and be readily available. And I've always said that Visa needed investment, as I said, it hasn't been updated since its rollout in 2003. That tells you a lot about the priority of public protection. So good guidance and training must also be developed hand in hand with any new database by experts and extra resources are required too. You see, public protection has never been the priority. It's always been the poor relative to every other type of crime unless a senior leader has a particular interest in it. This really shouldn't be personality dependent. Women's lives depend on it. And I don't want to see this continuous revolving door of a senior leader believes in it, so does something, then they move on and the work stops. This must be led by statutory agencies and it must be a you must approach, not charities leading this. And now is exactly the right time to make these changes. We've reached a tipping point. This is a watershed moment, in my opinion, and we mustn't miss it. We must keep the pressure on the government. Writing more guidance alone will not create the change that is needed. Police and probation services are awash with guidance. Sadly, most don't read it. And it's up to individual police leaders as to what's deemed important. We know that this area has been woefully under-resourced, despite the fact that it's where women and children are murdered. Each murder investigation costs around two million to investigate, and that's before any trial or review process. Each police call-out costs around £1,500. Responding to perpetrators time and time again is incredibly costly, and many commit domestic abuse and stalking as well as other crime. Taking a proactive approach to these violent men would save both money and lives. In 2020, I published the 24-page report entitled Terrorism Begins at Home, It's Time to Join the Dots, detailing many case studies highlighting that serial murder, serial rape, stalking terrorism and domestic violence murders would be prevented if abusive men's violent histories were proactively joined up and if the women who reported them were listened to and taken seriously. In many terrorist attacks, the perpetrators have practised at home before their public outbursts. In her book, Homegrown, Joan Smith, chair of the Mayor of London's Violence Against Women and Girls Board, highlights multiple cases, including Khalid Massoud, born Adrian Russell Elms, who drove across Westminster Bridge in 2017 targeting pedestrians and stabbed to death PC Keith Palmer. He had a string of criminal convictions for offences involving violence, including controlling and physically assaulting multiple women. 
Nazir Afzal, OBE, a solicitor and former chief crown prosecutor for the northwest of England, a colleague of mine, says, the first victim of an extremist or terrorist is the woman in his own home. He points out that 25,000 men are on the radar of police and security services as potential terrorist threats. You can't monitor 25,000, but you shouldn't have to. You already know which ones to target by flagging up violence against women as a high risk factor. And I couldn't agree more. If we want to stop men murdering women at alarming rates, stop serial killers in their tracks, terrorist attacks and mass murder, we have to get much more serious about focusing on the perpetrators when victims of domestic abuse and stalking report to police, particularly when the perpetrator has abused multiple women. For too long, the approach has been to focus on repeat victims, to identify and track them. High-risk cases have been heard at Marrick's, now, the MARIC stands for a multi-agency risk assessment conference for victims. Research by Bristol University has found that a perpetrator who's been assessed as high risk and whose case is heard at a MARIC generates costs of £63,000 to police the justice system, health and other services. And it's ironic that these risk conferences are victim-focused and that the professionals load the victim up with actions and a safety plan and rarely do any multi-agency problem-solving and risk management regarding the perpetrator. This is an alarming and significant gap in public protection across the UK, and like I said, I've been flagging it and raising it for 20 years. This is a leadership issue as well as an attitude and aptitude issue where women aren't believed, where perpetrators' histories are not checked and the links aren't made. Two HMIC inspections. HMIC stands for Her Majesty Inspectorate of Constabulary. Two reports revealed deeply troubling findings. A 2014 inspection into the police response to domestic abuse revealed no risk management of perpetrators. The HMIC FRS 2017 report, Living in Fear, which was an inspection into stalking, revealed a 100% failure rate by the police and Crown Prosecution Service in six areas. They looked at 112 cases and not one case was properly investigated and no stalker was proactively risk assessed or risk managed. Shocking and alarming. And yet these recommendations from these reports have still not been put into place locally or nationally. And we need a national consistent and coordinated approach to tackling the perpetrators, as I keep saying. One police leader may prioritise it, the next won't, which means the work's personality-driven piecemeal and stop-start. And there are disconnected pockets of good practice, but that's not good enough. We need it to be statutory, consistent and mandatory, because women deserve better. In 2021, I published a paper profiling 30 perpetrators. Now, out of those 30, 28 of the men had killed 31 women and eight children, and 30 of the men had seriously harmed another 58 women and 15 children. These failures are shocking, revealing again why serial perpetrators must be identified, assessed and managed. This is about women and children, not statistics. And since the 5th of January, the second reading of the Domestic Abuse Bill in the House of Lords, 30 women have been killed, and the clock is ticking until the next one. Baroness Royal read out their names in the House of Lords, and I want to do the same in order to honour them. Eileen Dean, Sue Addis, Carol Hart, Jacqueline Price, Mary Wells, 
Tiprat Agatu, Christy Fruin, Suad Belaha, Ann Turner, Nataya Elliot Cheverly, Nataya Elliot Cleverly, Rosemary Tinton, Ranjit Gill, Helen Joy, Emma Robertson, Nicole Anderson, Linda Mags, Carol Smith, Sophie Moss, Christina Rowe, Susan Hannaby, Michelle Lizanek, Wilauza Merajuska, Benelin Burke, Judith Reed, Anna Ovsanikova, Tina Eyre, Samantha Heap, Sarah Everard, Gaditka Goyle, Imogen Bahazakut, Wenjeng Su. They were all women. They were all someone. The perpetrators were all men, and the clock is ticking until the next one. We must remember them. And I also want to tell you about some of the women who are no longer here to tell you their stories, but have been a big part of why I do what I do and why I've continued to campaign so hard for 20 years for this to happen. I want you to remember them. And I'm going to start with Jane Clough, John and Penny's daughter. Jane was an A&E nurse who had warned the police that her violent ex-partner, Jonathan Vaz, was going to kill her when she separated from him. Vaz coercively controlled Jane and threatened to kill her when she left him. He'd raped her repeatedly and assaulted her. Jane was terrified when Vaz was bailed, having been charged with seven counts of rape and three assaults. Jane moved into her parents' house, John and Penny, with her baby, and she didn't leave the house for three months because she was so scared. He waited for her to return to work from maternity leave and arrive at the hospital car park where he stabbed her 71 times. He had a history of abusing other women that wasn't joined up. Jane wrote in her diary day after day, He's coming for me. People think I'm paranoid, but I'm not. No one knows Johnny like I do. And she was right, and yet no one listened. Holly Gazard was stalked and murdered by Asha Maslin in her hairdressing salon. Holly reported to police many times, yet there was no proactive investigation, risk assessment or risk management, despite the fact that Maslin was involved in 24 previous violent offences, including three on Holly, 12 on former partners, three on his mother and four on others. Helen Pearson called Devon and Cornwall Police 144 times over five years. She told police she thought the person writing threatening graffiti saying die Helen die, damaging her car and putting her windows in of her flat was a man called Joe Willis. She had met Willis once at a mind meeting and he asked her to go and see a band with him. She declined and he reacted very badly to the rejection. She told police this when she reported but they didn't investigate him. Helen was terrorised and became a virtual prisoner in her own home for five years. Each time she reported another terrifying event, Helen told the police that it was part of a pattern and linked to master crime, 5432, whatever the numbers was, she read out the number of the crime report. The police closed the investigation and Helen attempted to take her own life as she was left at her wit's end. And the abuse continued to escalate. Not only was Helen and her property targeted, he targeted her parents too and he made their lives a living hell. The police didn't investigate him, nor was he ever spoken with. And two weeks before Willis grabbed Helen off the street and stabbed her eight times with a pair of scissors, he left a dead and tortured cat on her doorstep. 
At no point was Helen or Willis proactively risk assessed or risk managed. The police, in fact, focused on investigating Helen as they believed she was making it up. Sharna Grice. Michael Lane stalked and murdered Sharna Grice in 2016. Sharna reported multiple times to Sussex police. Lane had abused 13 girls before Sharna and they had reported him. Despite this, there was no focus on Lane's behaviour or his history, only Sharna's, and Sharna was issued with a fixed penalty notice for wasting police time. Sharna was polite and terrified and went to the police for help. She did everything right. But there was no proactive investigation of Lane. In fact, Lane was interviewed by police for just 12 minutes. There was no intelligence or information share or referral to MAPA. Pearl Black and Janet Scott. Simon Mellers murdered two women, Pearl Black in 1999 and Janet Scott in 2018. Mellers murdered Pearl, the mother of his nine-year-old daughter, when she split up with him. When he came out of prison, he began a new relationship with Janet Scott. He didn't tell Janet about his history. Mellers coercively controlled Janet, threatened her and tried to kill her. She reported to Nottinghamshire Police and Probation. Mellors should have been recalled on licence, but no action was taken, despite her reports to police and probation, and Janet was brutally murdered in 2018. The probation officer, Andrew Victor, told Janet that he doubted Mellors would re-offend, and yet when he did, police and probation took no action. Victor said that he did not identify the stalking behaviour. However, why is it that a man who has killed his previous partner is not seen as a risk when Janet is terrified and reporting him for threatening to kill her? He told Janet, if I can't have you, no one can, when she tried to end the relationship. Again, Janet did everything right, and Mellors killed her in exactly the same way as he had killed Pearl Black, and nothing was done to manage the risks and stop him. Cheryl Lee Shannon Cheryl Lee Shannon was stabbed to death outside her home by convicted killer Paul O'Hara in March 2014 in front of police officers who had been called to investigate reports of domestic abuse. Cheryl Lee had suffered a broken nose, repeated facial bruising and a broken jaw at O'Hara's hands. She was held hostage at knife point at least twice before O'Hara killed her. O'Hara was previously given a life sentence in 1998 for killing ex-partner Janine Waterworth, but was released on licence in 2012. He had other previous serious convictions for violence against women. He had been assessed in prison as displaying traits of psychopathy at the time of his release, he was assessed as posing a serious risk to women. Despite his history and risk, O'Hara was not required to be managed by multi-agency meetings under the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangements, MAPA. The family first suspected that O'Hara was abusing Cheryl Lee when they saw her with serious facial injuries at a family gathering on bonfire night. At the time, Cheryl Lee gave an alternative explanation for the injuries. However, on the 1st of March 2014, she told her sister Ellen that it was O'Hara who had caused the injuries, that he had also fractured her jaw, and that he had held her hostage at knife point. She also told her sister about his history of offending. The family called the police. Police officers attended what they believed to be, in inverted commas, an ongoing domestic violence incident without any knowledge of O'Hara's history. They discovered his history on doing a police national computer check at Cheryl Lee's home, but they took no positive steps to arrest or risk manage O'Hara. Nor did they take a full account, either from Cheryl Lee, who was frightened and fearful of the consequences of police involvement, or from the family members present, 
who could also confirm the injuries. Coroner James Newman published a prevention of death report, raising alarm bells over the lack of interagency communication between probation services and police. In his findings, he questioned the role of MAPA for the county. He said, Following O'Hara's release, there was no local MAPA meeting, no interagency meeting and no significant interagency communications regarding the perpetrator, no detailing of his license conditions and no information regarding either his nature or the trigger factors of his offending. My concern is despite this and the findings of the report, there is still no mandatory process for the sharing of information between agencies where the offender, despite a known extensive history of domestic abuse and identified trigger factors, is then managed at MAPA level one. Well, I share those concerns, which is why I'm still pushing for this to happen. Justine Reese. Justine Reese was coercively controlled and stalked by serial abuser Nicholas Allen. Alan made Justine's life so unbearable and miserable that the judge said that Justine took her own life. She wrote in the suicide note that she had run out of fight, her words. Alan called her repeatedly, turned up unannounced, threatened her, threatened to kill her children, and when she went into a refuge for safety and protection, he desecrated her mother's grave. This was the final straw for Justine. Justine had called Staffordshire Police Service 34 times and asked for help, yet little was done. These calls were not cross-referenced, and it was revealed in court that Alan had a string of convictions for violence against women and girls, including harassment and stalking. After Justine's death, Alan was convicted of stalking, coercive control and manslaughter. Why wasn't Alan arrested and charged before Justine took her own life? Why was his history not joined up? Why wasn't he stopped? Why wasn't she taken seriously when she reported? Alan was jailed for just 10 years in 2017. He will be out in a few years and the next relationship he has will no doubt be the same. Kerry McCauley Kerry McCauley was brutally murdered by Joe Story in Norwich in January 2017. Kerry suffered 19 injuries to her head and face following an attack by Story who smeared her blood on his face and took a selfie before leaving her to die. Story had violently attacked five previous girlfriends dating back to 2008 and at the time of the murder had three restraining orders to protect former partners. Previously, the terrified mother of two endured four hours of being attacked and locked away by Story. She escaped bloodied and beaten wearing just her underwear through the window of her home. She called 999 and for 22 minutes pleaded for help telling the call handler about previous assaults for the first time and saying she was scared of further attacks. She feared he would kill her. In July 2016, Story received a restraining order for the prolonged and vicious attack, just like the ones he had breached repeatedly against his previous partners. Six months later, Kerry was brutally murdered by Story. The Domestic Homicide Review found that had Story been charged and convicted when he attacked Kerry in July 2016, he may have received another prison sentence and this may have prevented the murder of Kerry McCauley. In addition, had he then been under the scrutiny of the MAPA, the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangement, a monthly meeting where professionals share information on high-risk cases, it may have meant more cross-agency resources were alive to his potential threat and risk, and this may have had a deterrent effect. Kaylee Hanks 
Ian Patton strangled Kayleigh Hanks to death in July 2018. He had strangled three other people, including his ex-partner, before he killed Kayleigh. There was no risk assessment or risk management of his behaviour. These are not isolated cases. This is not isolated behaviour. These are patterned crimes against women and girls on a micro and macro level, and still the lessons are not being learned. This is not about a process per se. This is about a culture of misogyny, a gender bias and institutionalised sexism where women are routinely dismissed and male perpetrators are allowed to run amok. These failures are happening every single day in every part of the country. This is what Amendment 73 in the Domestic Abuse Bill would change. As I said, it includes a national perpetrator strategy to shift the focus onto the perpetrators and the problems of male violence. And it should be that the statutory agencies are charged with the responsibility of public protection and they should lead this work. We know Claire's law, the Domestic Violence Disclosure Scheme, doesn't work because there's no duty currently on police to put intelligence or information on the system about serial perpetrators. I also know that most restraining orders and orders relating to domestic abusers and stalkers are breached and then they're not enforced. Recently, it took nine months for one victim to get a stalking protection order. Now, this doesn't deliver safety or justice for victims and it doesn't join up a serial perpetrator's history. Women are tired and fearful. Why should women have to track violent and dangerous men and ask about their history? This should be the police's job. The police already identify repeat serial robbers, burglars, car thieves, organised criminals and terrorists and sex offenders. Why not domestic abusers and stalkers? Why are women being left at risk? We must ensure the police, probation and prison service take the lead on this work and work with other agencies to make violent and abusive men visible, responsible and accountable. Women's safety must be the number one priority for the government. In the wake of Sarah Everard's case and the many others, including Libby Squires, Cheryl Gabriel Hooper, Alice Ruggles, Jane Clough, Kirsty Trelaw, Holly Gazard, Jaden Parkinson, Sasha Marsden, Justine Reese, Shana Grice, Molly McLaren, Kerry McCauley, Maria Stubbings, Pearl Black, Janet Scott, Cheryl Lee Shannon, Janine Waterworth, and sadly, many, many others. We need leadership and action so that this isn't all in vain. Too many women and children have paid with their lives. This is about cultural change. We must challenge the misogyny, the sexism, the gender bias when women report. Guidance on its own will not do that. As of today, Friday the 19th of March, just under 235,000 people have signed the petition in support of Amendment 73. People want action, no more lip service, no more excuses, no more guidance and pieces of paper that people just don't read. And lastly, I want to say a few words about the Atlanta shooting that happened on Tuesday the 16th of March. Firstly, it's absolutely horrific, and my thoughts are with the victims, survivors, families and friends. Eight people were shot dead. Seven of them were women. Six were of Asian descent. Four were Korean. The victims have now been identified as Soon Si Park, Hun Jae Grant, Sun Cha Kim, Yong Hyu, Delena Ashley Huan, Chao Chia Tan, Dae Yu Feng, Paul Andre Michaels, and one man, Elsius Hernandez Ortiz, survived, but he's in intensive care. 
The first shooting happened shortly before 5pm on Tuesday at Young's Asian Massage and left four dead. About an hour later and 30 miles away, Atlanta police responded to what they thought was a robbery at the Gold Massage Spa and they found three people dead. While there, police received another call of shots fired across the street at the Aromatherapy Spa where they found one person dead. I do want to say that this is absolutely horrific and a man has been arrested. I will not name him. I refuse to, and we shouldn't platform him or his narrative. And so when I heard a law enforcement officer platforming the shooter's narrative for why he killed so many, saying that he had, in inverted commas, had a bad day, had a sex addiction, I was shocked and angry. Just because he's claiming the narrative and saying this, it doesn't make it true. When I analyse his actions, it's clear to me that he targeted particular victims, women, at particular locations for a particular reason. There was planning. It wasn't just happenstance he went there with a gun. He targeted women in three target-rich environments. In my opinion, these were premeditated attacks. He drove to multiple locations with murder in mind. This clearly wasn't about a bad day. I wonder how this felt for the families watching. The officer sounded like the spokesperson for the perpetrator. He could have just said they were investigating and he could not pass comment, but instead he went on to say that the shooter had said the attacks weren't racially motivated nor were they politically motivated. What? I mean, look at his actions. Look at the victimology. His actions are clear for all to see. He went across town and targeted three target-rich environments because they were full of women, and Asian women in particular. In my opinion, this is a hate crime. It is about sex. It is about race. It is about misogyny. And most isms co-occur in my experience. It's not one or the other. The BGOs, the blinding glimpses of the obvious, are being missed, yet again, by someone who will never experience either. I think a woman's sex is so often overlooked, and it mustn't be. It matters. We matter, and sometimes misogyny is so deep-rooted and ingrained and so prevalent in so many people, particularly men, but also women too, that they don't see it when it's staring them in the face. And I don't want to hear that he was having a bad day. We've all had those, yet we don't shoot anyone, let alone multiple people, in three separate locations. No one behaves like this because they're having a bad day. It's insulting on every level, and I want to ensure it's the victims who are named and remembered. Too often we see mass shootings due to ongoing domestic abuse, coercive control and stalking, and it's the women who are the victims of these horrific crimes, carried out almost exclusively by men. Name the problem of male violence, and then we can start to tackle it. So I know this is a heavy episode, it's a special briefing, but I wanted you to hear my thoughts as things were unfolding, and in particular because there's been so much going on this week, some highs, but some real lows. And there's some action points for you here, so please have your voice heard. We're at a watershed moment, so light some fire for change and action, so you can sign and share the petition complete the online government survey on violence against women and girls and male violence and share and amplify my social media posts and this episode. We can change this and we have to make women matter. So I'm signing off for now and I just want to say thank you for listening and remember to be curious, take action, 
ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>